Welcome to Inside Infrastructure. I'm Adrian Dwyer from Infrastructure Partnerships Australia, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Ilya Zak from series sponsor PwC Australia. Ilya, how are you doing? Well, Adrian, thanks for asking, uh, but particularly so this week because I got to revel in my uh, infrastructure nerdiness by giving the Sydney Metro Northwest a test run. Uh, right. So, um, I mean, it's a momentous occasion for Sydney and its public transport system, but I know you don't live or work at either end of that rail line. Why be there? I, look, I don't live or work anywhere near it, but I, I'd like to think it was Inside Infrastructure's first field piece, although I guess I didn't really record anything either. Um, but I did get to see the new bridge and SkyTrain sections, which all looked very fancy. And I'm mentioning those two specifically because I'm hoping to segue into our special guest for this episode. But it's seamless. Thank you, Ilya. Um, a great segue because our special guest for this episode is Avery Bang. She's the CEO of Bridges to Prosperity, a remarkable charity that constructs pedestrian footbridges in areas um, of the remote developing world. Uh, we had an excellent discussion with Avery a few weeks ago at PwC Sydney office, a few days after Avery delivered the Infrastructure Partnerships Australia annual oration. So without further ado, here's Avery. Uh, so Avery Bang, welcome to Inside Infrastructure. Um, I guess as a first step, can you tell us what Bridges to Prosperity is and what you do? Elevator pitch style. Elevator pitch. All right, that, that's an easy one. Uh, <laughs> Bridges to Prosperity is really focused on the rural last mile, so people that walk everywhere. And how do you physically connect them? So physically connect kids going to school, physically connect people going to markets and clinics uh, through simple pedestrian footbridges. Uh, and I'm the president and CEO, so kind of chief dreamer, chief paper pusher, whatever you want to think about it that way. So just um, so footbridges, like just um, paint a picture for me. What, what sort of a footbridge are we talking about and where? Absolutely. So footbridges that are you know, anywhere from about half a football field in length to two football fields in length, and only about a meter wide. So you're only walking, taking a bike, maybe a motorcycle. Thanks for using metric there. Yeah, just for you. <laughs> uh, and these are in remote corners of emerging frontier markets. So places like Rwanda, Uganda, Bolivia, that sort of place. So these are across a previously impassable exactly. ravine or river or that kind of... Well, it's kind of this, in this cross-section where there's two types of communities that are the most isolated that need the highest, you know, um, amount of attention. And one have been isolated forever. And so there's this seasonality and maybe with climate change, uh, rivers are um, rising more unpredictably and with greater velocity. Um, so that's one communities that are becoming increasingly more isolated, but have always been. And the other are communities that have tried to be connected. Let's say that they were with, uh, you know, someone had put a piece of cable across or had tried to build a bridge decades ago and have since been broken. And so those communities are still trying to cross in whatever method or mechanism they were able, but now longer, no longer are able. So they're, they're now blocked. Yeah. Okay. So I, I can see that this is a problem that people can't cross rivers, but could you just talk us a bit more through the problem you're trying to solve through Bridges to Prosperity? Can I use your kids? Yeah, go on. Go All on. right, that's fair, fair game. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so Jack and Emily, they're both, let's just imagine they're twins instead of being three and five. So two five-year-olds. And they are ostensibly going to start school. And so you want to send them, you know, let's say you've got a lot of gender equity in your blood and you really care about educating your little girl and your little boy equally. Well, if the river's up to their, let's call it your knees in the morning, you probably would say, you know, scamper on if you're going to come right back. But if you're going to send your little boy and your little girl to school and you're not sure if the river is going to rise tonight, if you're not clear that they're going to be able to make it home, I'd bet you anything that you and your wife would think differently about Jack going to school than Emily. Mm. Because Emily spending a night on the far side of a river would mean a very different thing than Jack. And for people around the world that live entirely in a walking existence, they walk everywhere. The ability to have that knowingness that, yes, I can come home tonight is the difference between going to school, going to a job, those sorts of things. What's the size of the problem? That you're solving. Have you, is there has there been any evalu evaluation of it? Yeah, the World Bank has a you know broad strokes one billion people put out there, so that's a one in seven mark. Uh, how's that defined? A uh, rural access index is a RAI is a radial distance of two miles from a capped road year round access. Right. And so that's certainly not 100% of those people are isolated because of a, a river. Right. Um, so there's some cross section of that. We estimate 10,000 communities globally 
uh, their one of their largest constraints is lack of access. Mm -hmm. 10,000 communities that you've identified would substantially materially benefit from a pedestrian footbridge. Yep. And how many of those have already been gifted a bridge? We are biting small. So we've only uh, built 300 to date. Um, but I think what's really exciting is that if you start to imagine uh, as a nonprofit or a charity, you have to really figure out what you do and do that really well before mm -hmm. you want to really start to scale in a meaningful way. Uh, but we're at that tipping point. So we've spent the last 15 years becoming really, really good at how do you design and build rural infrastructure and how do you build that with local vulnerable populations that are not trained or skilled and convert that into these last mile bridges. Right. So even though we've only built 300, um, we've actually taken on a contract here in the next five years to build another 350 just in Rwanda. So I think so often we are very congratulatory of our charitable work. We're like, oh, you hit this major milestone. You reached a million people. Right. And I had this slide where I had like million is, you know, whatever your your vertical axis. It wasn't not a log frame. So it's like, you know, a million people here. And my next slide was like, there's something like 500 million of a billion that are the ones that are isolated because of lack of a bridge. Right. And so you just give yourself a you know a bit of a reality check that I think more people in the social sector need to be really thoughtful about how do we start to solve the problem as opposed to just have incremental increases in impact. And I would think we're on the on the just starting edge. So before we talk just about that, the the bigger impact, let's start about the, the beginnings of Bridges to Prosperity. You can talk us through the history and, and how it came to be about and, and how you got involved. Sure. Um, so Bridges to Prosperity was founded in 2001 by a gentleman by the name of Ken France. And he, uh, as his story goes, he's a much better storyteller. But you can imagine he's at the the car getting or the vehicle store getting his oil changed. So you're like meant to be sitting there for 30 minutes, an hour, what have you. And he takes a National Geographic and he's just recently retired. So he's in his mid 40s, like he's done quite well. He's no longer needing to go make a paycheck. So he's sitting there waiting for his oil to get changed. And this National Geographic magazine just opens in his lap. And as he tells it, here's this like this photo of this multi-arched bridge that had been built in the 19 or the 1400s by the Portuguese. And this little multi-arched bridge, as he's reading the story, has been self-destructed by the local community back in 1938 to stop the Italian invasion from coming across Ethiopia. And so there's this fairly anecdotal story of this woman who is rafting the Blue Nile, comes across this old broken bridge, looks up and sees this crazy situation where there's a, essentially a string or a rope and several people on either side of this broken part of the bridge and people are literally like pulling themselves across. And so she's like, well, that's a photo opportunity you know, pulls off, takes a photo, makes it a National Geographic. And here's Ken sitting in, you know, the tire shop, waiting for his oil to get changed. And it's like, I could do something about that. And so he, you know, did what I think a lot of people don't have the courage to do, which was to actually put into motion a going to find out the, the problem, putting together, you know, a group of people, trying to figure out how to put the money together. And actually, I think it was two years later, went and actually built something of a bridge there in that where that picture was in national geographic it's exactly over yeah. that bridge yeah yeah okay so he, he solved a very very specific problem and that was the start and i think what was really important about our founding story is that he if you could kind of imagine and maybe we could put this live on your website somewhere is that if you imagine this multi-arch span and something's broken the most obvious solution is you take a truss and you put it over the the gap that's what he did he just did a truss structure on the gap but the reality of what he was promising was not a bridge. It was safe access. Mm. And so as a founding story, uh, he didn't have the context at that time that actually you have to know what's happening with the government and what's happening with other investments. And so it actually, the um, further upstream, there was a dam being put in. So mm. less than two years later, this effectively tidal wave comes down, makes it so that truss bridge is now entirely underwater mm. and the bridge gets ripped away. Yeah. And so herein starts Ken's really existential crisis of, is this a bridge that we've promised or is this access? And if not for a simple trust bridge right over this gap, the next best option is you actually look up the ravine in either direction. Kind of think about Indiana Jones. Mm -hmm. you, cover, you know, if you want to cross a big gorge, you've got to be able to get cables across that whole thing. Uh, so he started, the, this is way above his pay grade, if you will. 
and got this idea that he could start raising money with groups like Rotary um, and go build bridges. But that particular span was much too long to take on first. Yeah. And um, I can get to that later. I can babble. But eventually we were able to go back and build this 100 meter, you know, as long as a football field length bridge to connect those people again. So, so you have given away a couple of times in what you've said there. You mentioned a truss bridge and some other things. And I, I fear there might be an engineer lurking. Oh, no, that's embarrassing. <laughs> so you're an engineer by background? I'm trained as a uh, civil structural engineer and I worked in consulting for a little while, but it's actually my dad's fault. So to be real clear, like don't care if you're trained in it or not. My dad would take us um, like on a family holiday. We'd like, you know, pack in. We're middle America. Everyone road trips everywhere. So it's like my little brother and I, my, my lovely mom, and we've got like all these bags and our dogs squeezed between us. And then we'd like pull up to this middle of nowhere bridge abutment and pull off. And here we go, like toiling down the side of the hill and we'd be looking up and, you know, that was that was the, you know, not the stop on the way, but that was like the pinnacle of the journey. And so it was so embedded in my 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 blood that you start to appreciate the built environment around you and that, you know, these roads and bridges did not just exist. They were, you know, you know, products of a passion and a purpose for many, many people. Um, and so I did go into engineering school and uh, was able to, you know, kind of use some of my dad's passion towards so, my uh, career. Uh, both a, a genetically predestined to be an engineer and a trained engineer and then Bridges to Prosperity. How did you go from being a consulting engineer to, to doing this? Because there's plenty of bridges to build in the U.S., yeah. You've chosen. You've chosen to build them somewhere else. What's the, what, what's the driving force there? I, I was um, living in Fiji at the time, and I actually was kind of having one of those. Um, I think there should be something as a quarter life crisis. You're not yet old enough to really know what the heck you want to do, but you're pretty sure you want to do something of purpose. And you know, I was like sitting there, being like, my math and my science are going well, but like physics and differential equations and all this engineering stuff isn't necessarily that challenging per se, but like really unfulfilling. Speak, speak for yourself. <laughs> it's challenging. I mean, I mean, challenging, but like, right, you know, it's not rocket science. It's just yeah. to get through it. I find simple arithmetic difficult. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fair. Yeah. For me, the, the math wasn't the, the challenging part. It was the finding a sense of why. Mm. And here I am in these classrooms and toiling away and not sleeping just to study and all these things. And I'm like, for what? so I can be a number crunching monkey somewhere. Like that seems so soulless. And I- I'm taking that personally. I know, I, sorry. I'm probably offending all of your all of your listeners here. Yeah, PwC here, yeah. It's probably yeah. a few number crunching monkeys around. I know, I'm really, I actually love my calculator. You know, it's like still sleep by my bed. Um, but I think in general at that age, it was like a really, it felt really big. It felt like I am going to graduate and do what? And there was like just such a deep seeking component to where I was at that point. So I was like, maybe I could go and study abroad or live somewhere else and, you know, find my way. And I had um, actually, I lost one of my favorite aunts to breast cancer that summer and had this kind of, well, maybe I should go into healthcare, you know, of all the wonderful people in the world and all of the, the you know, the greatness that can come of, of the human existence. There's still so much unknown about how we can, you know, have the quality of life improve and also, you know, durability of one's life. Maybe I'll go into healthcare, and so, you know, I showed up in Fiji, and you know, in hindsight, I know how ignorant and naive this was, but I like remember going down to the Breast Cancer Foundation, and I'm 20. I'm like, hi, you know, like, what can I do to help? And nothing, and pretty much, you're going to be probably unhelpful. Uh, but they put me into a little team of people that would go out and um, effectively just do, you know, discussions of why early breast cancer detection was important because at that time. There's only one mammogram machine on the entire, you know, any of the islands. So you're having like stage four is your average diagnosis um, for someone coming in to, to actually get evaluated. And, you know, as we're going out and doing these, this little group of people to go and to teach about the importance of early detection, our ability to actually get to the communities was highly constrained by the physical environment around us. So I come from middle America where, you know, we don't have a lot of wealth, but I also was not able to, I was never constrained in my ability to go to school or go to a hospital or go to a market because I didn't have a road. And so in Fiji, it was so fascinating that our ability to reach these 
populations to be able to just do something so simple as have a conversation about preventative health um, was based on the lack of infrastructure or or something there. And so I, I remember coming across a pedestrian footbridge during one of these little visits. And there are these kids running across towards me at the same time that I'm meant to be walking across to go speak with these women. And it was just one of those like, ah, that's not that challenging. Like, you know, it is, but not. Mm-hmm. A bridge is actually quite simple and it's an equalizer. It's, in, it's interesting that you mention it in, in that context because the one of one of the questions we wanted to ask was, you know, why bridges? Because there's any yeah. number of services that these places are going to need. And I guess, so you're saying it's it's not so much that they need the bridge, it's that the bridge is the enabler of those other services. That is that fair, a, a Absolutely. fair statement? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I think it's quite frustrating, actually, cause, because now that you've seen something and you see the root cause of poverty is actually lack of access. Right. Um, the inefficiencies of doing it in the reverse are, are crazy. So, like, you could do two water poles and two schools and two clinics, or you could just be like, wow, maybe we should connect these two bits first. So have you uh, had any chance to evaluate just how how much these bridges are enabling delivery of, the, of those other services? Yeah, it's a super good question. We worked with the University of Notre Dame and Yale to evaluate um, what the attribution of impact to, due to a footbridge. And so what they were able to look at over the course of about a three and a half year study period was to look at communities with the bridge in comparison to those without, and particularly around um, economics. So household level income, there was profound differences uh, with people who had access. And what they found was like two different parts of increased income. Um, one is if you have access, you're more likely to go to labor. So you can go get day wages, you know, get paid, these things. Uh, but the second is as a farmer, which many, many people who live in the walking world are small, smallholder farmers, these farmers were able to take risks that were just not available to them when they didn't have infrastructure. So what the researchers found was that when controlling for all the other variables, bridges made possible for farmers to take on risks like buying more seeds, buying more fertilizer, planting more of their land if they had more. Um, they also no longer, as a farmer, had to store surplus to be able to absorb um, essentially a shock event like a river rising. And so you, you take all of those things together and this surplus production, higher yields, um, higher volume of production, and you were able to get 75% increase in household, uh, sorry, in farmer profitability. So labor market increase as well as farmer profitability and household incomes are going up over 30% just so based that, on a bridge. So with the farm, that's just certainty of access to the market. You got it. Yeah, so they just know that they'll be able to get, if they can cultivate the land, grow the seeds, harvest them, they will be able to get to market. Exactly. Because you think about it, like if, if you're living uh, you know, day by day, literally, but a season can either sink your entire family or incrementally improve your status, like you don't have the same buffer. Like the financial buffer that we all exist with is just not uh, not available to people in the very bottom billion. And so to have a bad crop or worse yet to have spoilage. So you didn't even, you already paid the money. You've had all of your, you know, there goes all of your income into the seeds and the mm. fertilizers. And then you're, you're isolated and you're stuck on the far side of a river and your production starts to spoil and it continues to spoil, well, you're never going to see that money again. And so a farmer has to be so calculated on how much risk she is willing to take. And so if you know that you can go, it's just that knowingness, like that that changes a risk behavior in a pretty profound way. I'm, I'm conscious that a, that a lot of the examples you give, uh, they're very specific examples to, uh, you know, one family, one farmer. Do you have a sense of how many um, how many farmers or how many families are served by an individual bridge? Or yeah. is there like a minimum requirement that you have to justify going in and putting in a bridge in a certain place? Are you familiar with Sarah Palin? Uh, I have. Yeah, yes, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Okay. So in the American context, um, I get asked this like a bridge to nowhere. Yeah. Google search it. Um, it's a very funny situation over there. But we are very conscious of how do we go about selecting where and why. Right. We work with governments to build infrastructure, and sometimes it could be perceived as a political or politically motivated investment. Um, but I think what's really important is as we select where, there's both technical criteria. So, 
certainly could build a bridge that's several miles across, but that would be an inefficient use of resource. And you certainly could also build something that's maybe 10 feet wide, but also just throw a log across it, right? Um, but more critically into your question is that there's a sweet spot where you could build in an urban environment and have tens and tens of thousands of people crossing a bridge every day. But the incremental difference for them, if you think about the amplitude of that change for their livelihood, is maybe quite a bit smaller than a rural environment where you could have just several hundred. That, that's how we measure them here. We measure them in terms of minutes saved per person, but it's still someone might save 10 minutes, 20 minutes from an enormous bridge. Um, and I'm guessing in your in for the bridges that you're building, it's days, but maybe not a million people going across, but like you said, a hundred. But but what what where do you where do you draw the line that a hundred people saving ten days does that does that do those two factors add up to a bridge to prosperity? Yeah, <laughs> we actually call it an isolation isolation index, which is really an internal framework through we decide if it's a go, no go, at right. least to be able to go forward with the government or our public sector partner. And I think what's challenging is that isolation index is really unique per country. So great examples in Bolivia, you'll very rarely find farming communities more than five, 600 people. Mm -hmm. Like that's a fairly median sized community. In Rwanda, it'd be really uncommon to work in a community less than 2,000. Right. And so you can't, we just have made the decision that if we elect to work with the government and to be in involved with a partner of that level, population density is really specific to that particular program. So we don't actually compare across countries once you're in it. That said, we obviously look at our unit costs. So like your, um, even we think about dollar per person served at the more macro level. Um, and the more nuanced is like, how much does it cost us to create access to a water point? Or how much does it cost us to create access uh, to any number of the services? And I think, you know, most of the sustainable development goals are also actually uh, around a metric unit of time. So mm -hmm. safe water access is defined by a measure of time of walking to that thing. And so I think to your questions, lots of good social services and a lot of great charities. But we believe that if you can first connect all the goods and services that are there and then be able to be that framework and that foundation upon which all other both you know, social and infrastructure and otherwise can be built upon on top, it's a much more efficient way to do it. So I want to, have you got a follow-up question earlier or can I? Oh, no, go nuts. Yeah, so I, you've made a decision. You, you, there's a government you can work with. Uh, there's the willingness to do it. So you've, you've raised the money. You've decided a bridge is going to go here. Just talk us through like, the engineering. What are these? How do you make them? How do you do them efficiently? Open question. Yeah. This is going to be the nerdy part of Avery coming out. Is that all right? No, that's fine. We're, we, we're accepting of everyone here. Okay. I don't feel judged. <laughs> um, that's actually what I wrote my master's thesis on uh, in engineering school was how could we standardize this infrastructure in a way that could just be, I don't mean to be so blasé, but a red bridge, a blue bridge, a green bridge. Mm -hmm. And you literally go into a tabular function and say, what's the height difference between the two sides and also what's the, the distance across or span? And based on those two variables, put it into, you're like, it's going to be the red bridge on the right side. And it's going to be a blue abutment on the left side. And here's all your bill of materials. Here's your quantities. Poof. And I think for a long time, I, I really thought that the challenge was a technical one. Like I really, you kind of get this sense of like, if people just knew how simple this was, you could just create the standard, make the manual, and then voila, you hand it off and then it happens. And I remember having this it's kind of, you know, I want to say I was with the organization six, seven years and the uptick just wasn't happening. I was like, we're getting really good at how do you just standardize design these things, how to train local engineers, how to survey, how to train local folks to build them. But the volume of work was fairly flat and it took a lot of soul searching of is it the technology itself is not right, is people don't actually want footbridges, what is going on here? And you know, I think what came out of that other side is our team found out that it really was not a technical problem, but a um, capital mobilization one. And so these, the size of the asset, if you want to think of a bridge like an asset, was too small for a federal central government to get involved. 
We're talking less than 100,000 U.S. These are quite tiny on the scale of a national government, even in Rwanda. And yet, if you think about a district or state government, again, we'll just use Rwanda as an example, that is quite big. If you think about they need to be building 30, 50, 100 of these things. And then we're talking about timescales. We're like, we can't wait 100 years to build simple pedestrian infrastructure. You're mm -hmm. going to miss the opportunity here. Mm -hmm. So there's a time urgency to it. So here's the district governments. They are not bondable. Like no one is like these district governments are not going into the market and borrowing money. But they're and they're aware of the problem. They're definitely aware of the problem. Like they're aware that these particular sites would benefit from some kind of intervention. That's the way that we procure sites is actually through um, kind of almost thinking like a call center where we were working with our public sector partner not to ask who wants a bridge because everyone will throw their hand up and say mm -hmm. me just like you know free handouts right um, but it's more of a constraints analysis like where are people currently not having year-round access maybe it's to school maybe it's healthcare where are markets having you know differences in attendance and aggregating that up and so the government ends up taking us to all the places where they've identified high need sites. So it's actually the, the district level government in, in the Rwandan context is called sectors and cells. So all the cell and sector leaders are the ones that have requested this infrastructure. And by the time you get to the state government, they're well aware that they are having anywhere from like 30 to 300, you know, places that have been requested. And maybe 25% of those are in that sweet spot of high impact and technically feasible. And you just pick them off one by one, kind of whatever's the most uh, benefit versus cost, the, whatever comes out with the best ratio, or do you, is there some other programming mechanism that you use to decide which ones you, which ones you build? Yes, that's actually kind of the, the shift that we've, we're going through right now is we used to just do one by one, what's the highest project, how many can you afford to put in your budget this year, you know, rinse, repeat, do it again. And going back to the time urgency, we're like, we're not going to solve this problem in Rwanda in the next 100 years, let alone globally. And that's crazy. This is not hard. And so we went back to the drawing board and actually said, well, what if we were to aggregate and put all of these rural projects across not only one district, but all of the districts into a single portfolio? And that portfolio of work, then instead of being 100,000 US per bridge, you're looking at hundreds of bridges and the transaction size in this case was $28 million. So $28 million is a number that a central government in the Rwandan context can respond to. What's, what's $28 million paying for, by the way? So are we paying, is that local labor? Is that your time? Is that, what, what does it go towards? Yeah, we'll be building 355 bridges um, by the end of 2024, which is in alignment with Rwanda's national strategy for transformation. And so what that full budget cost includes is the whole suite from local labor, local transport, local engineering, superintendents. How, how, does, that, how does that break down, if vaguely? Yeah, yeah. So um, are, we're really proud to announce that the Ministry of Finance, Ministry of Infrastructure, Ministry of Local Planning, and the Rwandan Transportation Development Authority, and thus Bridges to Prosperity, have come together to split that cost. So in total, $28 million, um, the government of Rwanda's consortium part is roughly 40% of that. And they're paying for all the direct materials that are local, all of the local labor, all the local transport. They're also helping to pay for the importation of the materials that we um, get donated. We, on the other hand, are covering things like capacity building, training, construction oversight, quality control, safety, um, so salaries. Th that's that's it's a it's an interesting point because is that there's a, a big uh, issue often in 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 charitable work that uh, involves construction where they end up often taking local jobs um, and sure. the, and it sounds like you have identified what's missing and are only trying to add that is that fair to say I'm sure there's a lot of other things that are missing but in this particular subset I have no business of taking a job from a local person who yeah. can easily carry rocks and dig holes exactly like any the next guy so they're all being paid okay. and they're all from the local which which is kind of a cool model if you think about it the people who are going to use that bridge every day are the ones that build it right um the tier of folks that are the superintendents and really need to uphold that duty of care and that safety bar are coming from a regional area but they too are rwandese and have gone through like a two-year vocational program um yours 
Nope. Usually through a local. We, we hire out of places like um, Kigali Institute of Science and Technology, um, you know, a host of different vocational and institutional uh, places of higher education in Rwanda. Right. But I am not trying to fly in here with a bunch of Australians and Australians or let alone Americans to take people's jobs. Um, the ways that we engage. We're very expensive. Oh, you guys are really bloody expensive. <laughs> I'll tell you um, but like the, 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 the way that we try to get the foreign nationals involved is how do we model things that are hard to, uh, to find talent locally. So things like if we're going to have a really long or more complex structure and we need to have a new construction method where maybe just for example, you can imagine these towers are 10 meters and they're laying flat and they need to be erected to, to vertical. Like that's something you don't really want a bunch of folks who don't have experience in guying off towers to do for the first time. Yeah. You bring in a team from a company like a Balfour BD or an Arup who can help design and build something like that and train our team how to do that more effectively and efficiently. But critically, you know, 80% of the infrastructure we're building has no foreign nationals that ever touch it. Right. So, uh, so I... Uh, <laughs> I mean this question in the most respectful way and, and I respect you, but it strikes me that you're applying commercial capitalist principles to solve this problem. And I like that, you know, this is my kind of perception maybe of some of the aid world is is um, just, just people that really want to solve problems and help, but maybe don't have that commercial lens or focus on it. Was that, is that your kind of, it's such a compliment. I should yeah. pay you more. So, but that, is that your kind of, is that what you bring to it personally, that, that, that commercial lens? I mean, I think at my root, I'm, I'm really driven by the sense that if you can have a win-win, a lot more will get done. So if I'm a, you know, just a charity that's constantly asking and taking, mm. our potential impact is going to be so limited. Um, I think that's a large reason why I went back to business school was I, I had this felt sense that, you know, as trained as an engineer, I've, I've got all the technical chops it takes, but I was being left out of a conversation about really what's happening and why is there not more money coming to this problem of rural isolation? And, you know, it, there's a number of different stakeholders that all could have a win-win. So thinking about the public sector, it hadn't occurred to me that it's not that there's not the political will it's just the transaction size was too small. So there's too much friction, if you think of it this way, in the system mm -hmm. to be able to get out to actually contract with all of these individual contracts. So it wasn't that there was a, um, you know, a lack of wanting. It was just a lack of uh, capital principles that I was like lacking for me. And I think equally for the way that we engage the private sector here in Australia and elsewhere is that if I'm going to come up and be like, Adrian, can you just give us a check? every year, eventually you're going to tire of me. But if I come and say, well, there's actually this win-win. You help me build the capacities and skills of a very specific part of my program. And in exchange, you're going to be able to spend 10 people into R Rwanda for 10 days. And those 10 people are going to be able to be part of your ethos of your company, whether you're using that recruiting or, you know, in your marketing, you know, there's a lot of use cases for it. And so I think what's really unique about Bridges to Prosperity is we're trying to figure out how do you win wins all over the place? Like even I'll use another example is procurement. You know, one might say like how boring you're talking about how do you get steel cable into the country? Well, if you think about long span cable bridges, the most costly and most expensive material is this cable. And so the win-win that we were able to figure out was port authorities, like here I can actually see over my shoulder, is that if you bring a container ship to a port and you need to get a container off of the ship and back on land or conversely back onto the ship, it's just a pulley system. And those cables end up having to be scrapped. So there's some commercial value to that. Let's call it, you know, a couple dollars metric ton of whatever the steel pricing is, I have no idea. But if I have to go buy that material, we're talking about $10 a linear meter upwards in the markets where I'm trying to import. So if I can get that cable that otherwise is totally fine, you cut it at the places where the pulleys have been touching it, it has fray, you load test it, re-spool it, put it on containers, have the government import it, then it's a win-win because then there's a good story and also like a, you know, a tax receipt for the port for donating cable. And in exchange, we have a much reduced capital expenditure for our projects. So that, that's a, you know, that's something that you have to, there's no unique insight that you have into these countries that they would, um, 
you know, you'd have to do a lot of research to go and identify those opportunities. Is there, why not just give it to some local construction company, for example? What, 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 why are they not able, they'd have the supply chain sorted out, they'd know where they're getting their steel, assuming, you know, I'm assuming they'd be working on much bigger projects. What are you, um, are you helping them or are you, are you just coordinating on the ground or are you um, kind of replacing what they would be doing otherwise? Well, I mean, our, our big vision is we're creating little construction companies mm-hmm. in markets where they aren't currently. So if you think about, I'm not talking about Kigali, I'm out in Relindo or I'm right. out in, in Guerrero. There are not construction companies that I'm undermining in the way that you and I would think about, right. you know. There's no one building anything out there. Market competition. There's NGOs and there's governments doing really great work around things like healthcare centers or schools. Yeah. Um, but what we think we're kind of uniquely positioned to do is to create a portfolio of work that's across a huge region. So maybe the World Bank could contract on a big education program and could have 100 schools. That's super reasonable. The way they procure that and they would contract that would eventually get local construction folks involved for sure. Uh, but I think what we're trying to do is to say that in a lot of these areas where it's nationwide, you can create what's called build teams. Mm-hmm. And so our kind of unit of production, if you think of it this way, are, you know, three or four tiers up, but everything from contracts, procurement, safety, quality, operations, um, and that's all self-contained within these units. So I can build 24 bridges per year per unit. And so when you start to think about, there's no reason that those build teams couldn't build other infrastructure. They could build social infrastructure like schools or hospitals or clinics, but we are just building that kind of backbone of how do you get all the resources in place and build these little companies to do that. So you leave these construction companies as an ongoing entity after you're done in the area. That's our hope in the Rwandan context. Okay. Yeah. But with a five-year program in Rwanda, you've got, there's jobs to move people to. So It's a huge a- employment. Just like, I mean, if you think about, like, I can use the United States as an example. Uh, infrastructure investments are a huge um, coup for the economy, not only because they make the connection more efficient, but also it's a huge employment scheme. And so it's the same thing here, is that we're employing a huge cross-section of Rwandese to make this program possible. And at the other end, it's not like people are all of a sudden like skillless. Mm-hmm. Um, and ideally, the way we've structured it is that they're not highly dependent on this foreign aid organization to continue employing them. But we think it's actually year three to four when we really build out the how do you transition build teams into could they contract on their own? It's it's related to another very common problem in um, um, a lot of foreign aid is that uh, the it's very e- it's it, it's surprisingly easy to get capital for the delivery of a solar panel or a battery or something else. Making sure that it keeps working for thirty years, though, is um, often challenging. And I and I can't remember the, the charity, but there was some there was some remote island that had a whole bunch of solar panels installed, and after a year or so, they stopped working, so they just chucked them in the water. Um, and you know, not their fault. I mean. They weren't taught how to maintain it, and um, it's it's quite a skilled process. Do you have some kind of some kind of way of ensuring that a the bridges are maintained and b the locals know how to do it without your ongoing presence? Yeah, it's super. I think that's one of the biggest challenges in the sector is like how do you have ongoing operation and maintenance? Make sure that your investment has a lifespan that you intend. Um, And I think what's really uniquely helpful for bridges, different than water, and certainly different than solar, is that a water pump has, just think about how many little pieces can go wrong, and infinitely more for solar. So I don't wish to be in those sectors. I think for figuring out how to have locally maintained infrastructure when you have very complicated assets is um, a challenge that has not been cracked yet, to be honest. I think with footbridges... um, the idea is that you create such a durable asset that you have really low maintenance requirements. Like in the Rwandan context, 100% of our bridge decks went to steel. So if you can think about the option of having like a timber deck, which has a, let's call it 10-year lifespan, even if you do the full life cycle cost of, you know, replacing a deck every even seven years and call the lifespan of the structure 30, which is kind of our engineering mark, um, the reality is places like, rural Rwanda, it's very challenging to replace a deck. So even if you calculate all the time and, and all the bits as well as materials, it's much better to de- over-design and to, mm-hmm. to remove the critical path of, of maintenance. 
Um, so we've done that. So as, as much as we've been able is you remove maintenance from the ne necessary daily. The second part is we do spend a tremendous amount of resource and time training the local community and how do you do annual maintenance. Mm -hmm. Here's the checklist. The bridge committee that is created both for building um, as well as ownership are the ones that are left with a here's a how-to and here's the checkpoints and everything's, you know, photos and, and little graphics. Do they get paid? And they do get paid. As the, for over the 30 years? Um, over the 30 years, it depends. So like most of the operation and maintenance costs O&M is actually baked into the contract with the district. Right. So that's the third part. So the third part is that we have an inspection program. So we have a one-year warranty period where we'll come in and we'll say, here's the like handoff of the asset, goes to the public sector. And up to one year, if anything defaults, then we are 100% on the line for that. Um, but that starts and initiates an inspection program that continues. So you go back biannually and you have... You go and you say, oh, well, it actually looks like, I don't know, you know, the, the, the you know, U-bolts are un unraveling and you're having a like loose deck panel. We know what those are, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> so, across the engineering. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, there's some sort of deck panel that's, you know, lifting up and making Please it. Please dumb it down for us. Sorry. Uh, just imagine that like the deck starts. Ham hammer and nail. That's as far <laughs> as we go. The nail starts to remove itself from the timber. And now it becomes more obvious. Um, like there's things like that where in the first year, a lot of the like really trivial things are things that might will come up, will come up in the first year. So you have an opportunity to engage with the community again and say, well, here's how we maintain that. Remember, this is how you do it. But much more challenging is longer term. Mm. So when, let's say, eight years out, we see the deck needs to be replaced and, hey, it's contractually in the owner's contract to replace that. It would be one thing for me to just say, no problem. Let me take care of that for you. It'd actually be very efficient for me to do that. Much more challenging in what we take on is effectively saying there is a problem that needs to be addressed and this needs to get into the public sector's budget next year. Right. So if you did not accrue that balance of that O&M as we had talked about it and it's in your contract, this needs to be replaced and had, have essentially the local staff that are advocating. And part of the cool thing about doing a nationwide program is our willingness to engage with the district, if you aren't fulfilling on your past contracts, we're super able to just take a step back and say, well, if you're not you know, doing asset management with your current projects, why should we continue building with you? Um, but it's complicated. This is- Sorry, just, just yeah. one more question on it, Adrian. So how's it been going? I mean, the, you've built, you said 300 or, or so, are they all still, still standing? Yeah, so we've got 300, I think two projects completed. Um, I gotta be careful. Here's me, me knocking on some wood. We've never had a bridge failure, okay. uh, with the exception of that original project I mentioned earlier right. with Ken. Um, but we've had to have a we've had to spend a lot of money and resource on on inspection maintenance, um, and in some cases we actually had to totally scrap a project and rebuild. So, like in the example of that last, um, you know, scrap and rebuild, scrape and rebuild, it was in Haiti. We had a uh, hurricane come through in the Grand Anse region. And it's, you know, 10 foot swells and nothing I can assure you that an engineer is designing for in terms of wind gusts and, and wave height. Um, we had five projects in the region. Four of them were serviceable within a week when we sent in our recon crew. Or actually, I think we had to do a little bit more, but they were crossable, safely crossable several weeks later. The fifth bridge, the, uh, the river had entirely meandered. And so at that point, it's not really the fault of the community no. or the district. That's a poor placement. Whether or not we made the decision correctly based on the information we had. Um, so we actually went back to, uh, we were partnering with CARE on that um, and funded through the UK aid, DFID. And we were like, we're going to take this on whether or not you guys support us, but we feel like we have the moral ethical obligation to replace this entire bridge. Um, and they stepped up and helped make that financially possible. So, you know, there was a two years out of service, but we were able to but rebuild the br it. The bridges that, 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 um, leaving aside any sort of natural disasters, they're standing, they're actively used, you're, you're still following up on them occasionally and you, you can see that it's, uh, you know, these are all fantastic investments, like yeah. as expected? Well, I think what's, yeah, our, um, you know, I think our inspection team and our maintenance team are quite proud of the durability. But the, the interesting thing for us is that we have a feedback loop, which is unique to when you do one thing and do it well is that when you start to have hundreds of things that are the same, you can start to see early days. Like, oh, well, that, I'm just going to make up an example. Let's just say the way that we connected the cable, that wasn't working. Mm -hmm. You can see it a couple of times over, you change your entire design process. So by the time you have 
now it's like actually over 15 years of building one type of thing over and over. The actual bridge itself is pretty durable and, and upstands um, uh, really high levels of like durability um, testing, if you think of it this way. How much of a problem is corruption? Ooh, uh, in what way? Well, in, in no, without reference to any particular country, do, do you find you're able to you know, cut through the, the challenges that come with kind of local governments and local power and the potential for, for the money that you know, relatively small amounts of money you're being put in being diverted to other, uh, to other things that aren't building bridges? That's a super good question. I mean, I think the reality is that in many of the places where we work, there is some level of political corruption. Um, I like to think almost every government has corruption. It's just how legitimized is it or not. And so I think in the frontier emerging markets, most of Africa, Haiti, Latin America, um, you've got to be really cautious how money flows. So I think that that's the biggest um, risk mitigation strategy that we have is that as opposed to let's just call you Mr. Mayor, Mr. Mayor Adrian, if I have a contract with you, which I'm meant to be having my donors funding money to you and I get paid entirely through a contract with you, that's a different opportunity for skim than if you are paying this particular thing directly. So let's say that you're paying for transport and local labor, um, you know, fill in the blank, and I'll pay, I'll cover my part. Um, and so I think as you get bigger and you're procuring with like a, a world bank or the, you know, bilaterals, things get more complicated, obviously. Um, so like we've contracted with World Bank in Haiti uh, and you end up having to work with like essentially through subcontracts that they already have a contract, like a standing contract with mm -hmm. the bank or the government. Um, but it is it's not inconsequential kinds of uh, potential for your staff to just say, oh, well, it's fine. Like just this will be easy, e you know, this will be easy. And so the amount of time we spend talking about how do you make sure that you're not getting sucked into corrupt practices or it's you're not under such tremendous time pressure that you have no option but to oblige that, I think is really key. Um, and that's, I, um, yeah. that's an interesting point, though, because that runs foul of a whole bunch of um, U.S. and Australian laws uh, that you, you, you might you might. If you're aware of the corruption, then you might not be allowed to participate in it with as a U.S. entity. Absolutely. So I think it's like really important that like how we contractually engage with the government. So if they're like, we can't clear anything. A really good example. We can't clear cable because you're last in queue. OK, that could be exactly what's happening. That could also be an invitation for a bribe. Who knows? Genuinely. So if your project cannot proceed without that cable, there's a couple ways you can address that. One is that you go and you advocate really hard and you're like trying to beat the door down and then you're like actually being asked for a bribe. Or two, you end up having to stockpile. So you're so far ahead of your supply chain and your inventory is essentially a warehouse storage. Like I have so much cable ahead of projects that I'm not going to be stuck having to pay a bribe or having to sit there. I don't care if you keep my cable. Like we had our cables uh, in one particular unnamed country um, in their clearing customs for almost two years. Happily, because I already had cable. You know, it's coming. It'll come eventually. Um, but I think you got to be really careful. And if staff do feel like they're being put in a position that is uh, corruptible, it's like having a whistleblower and a chain of command that comes all the way to the top. So that way it's elevated. So I think that's a, that's a really interesting point because that's a there's a values call there where you said we'll bear the extra cost on storage. Yep. And that might be greater than the cost of the, the going bribe to solve a problem. Which is the value proposition of the bribe. Right, sure, right. But you're making a values-based decision that, no, we're not going to engage in that. And we'll wear a little bit extra cost elsewhere. To It's a lot of more cost. It goes back to the same thing as maintenance and inspection. It's like it would be a lot more efficient just to, you know, left, right, do whatever you need to do to get it done. But if you have like a basic principle that you believe that the local public sector should be the owner mm. and you're fairly patient, this is a big reason why we have, you know, at any given time, you know, maybe three to one projects in queue that like we could take or leave, which is like a fairly agile work environment. Like we are not committed a year out on exactly what projects we're on. We just have crews scheduled out in their, in their kind of, if you can imagine, um, 
their full Gantt chart and schedule, but they're not committed to that one particular project because if any number of things come up, it's like, fine, no rush. We'll go somewhere else. And that's, that's taken 15 years to really figure out how to do in a way that don't put your staff in a deeply compromising position. It's not just staff. I mean, you'd, you'd, you'd end up losing donors. You'd, oh, um, and I could lose my job. Exactly. I could be in jail for sure. It's like not, it's not a thing to take lightly. So we've spoken about um, what Bridges Prosperity's done, the, the incredible um, vision to, to solve the last mile, um, rural pedestrian last mile in Rwanda. And what's the, that's, so that's the next five years. What's, what's the big vision? Solve this problem globally? I think it's I think it's a problem we can solve and we can solve it in our lifetime. But it's essentially like if we can prove the impact of networked connection in a whole country and start to see not only the deep um, benefits to the individual, to the house, to the community, but that starts to translate also to a region and better yet a nation. I believe that this will become one of the preferred aid mechanisms. So as right now you could think about central governments, bilateral agencies, the bank, how they're putting capital into infrastructure works. It's largely power, which is great. Um, if it's in transport, it's usually in vehicular access. I think this could become another pillar of those investments, but as opposed to being central urban uh, infrastructure, we're starting to talk about aggregating rural assets into portfolios that could be investable at scale. So I think we could start to pro solve the problem of last mile isolation across the continent and I think globally as well. The, there's um, something that I think you've mentioned at a previous event that uh, about potentially, and it sound, it's going it, to, you know, it sounds ghastly potentially, but um, maybe tolling these bridges. <laughs> and I mentioned it because there's an interesting overlap uh, with, you mentioned earlier, water, an interesting overlap with um, microtransactions that people in these countries have access to because of their mobile phones, that uh, some water infrastructure that's delivered by charitable organizations is able to be maintained because people pay for it with, you know, tiny, tiny transactions. Is that something that you've considered for one of your bridges? It's an area of like deep personal interest. Um, I think there's so much behavior change difference between a, a public good and a, and a public good that ends up being utilize at an individual level. So whereas I think your point is something like a water utility, your tap can be on and off or you can get your jug filled or not. That's a very much an individual benefit mm -hmm. that I think behavior around that has been proven. Um, there's some great research coming out of Oxford on this and a willingness to pay mm -hmm. and a willingness to pay around rural water and rural water works when serviceability changes. So if you can start to see people will pay more if you have better maintenance, that's very interesting, innovative work. Um, however, the public good is to the personal benefit, whereas in the transportation infrastructure, I think it's the same reason you get a lot of pushback publicly for PPPs and all sorts of, you know, road environments is people believe that they should just be able to go and have free access. But critically for us, if you go back to what I was saying earlier about the benefit for a farmer is not actually needing to go across, but the opportunity to. Mm -hmm. So as we did, we did a couple like internal studies about it, it was as a farmer, you'd only have to pay to go over when it was really severe, the once in, you know, whatever number of times. And so there's two ways you could do that. One is that you price it equivalently. So it ends up having like a spike, almost like your Uber surcharge. So it's raining. We're going to surcharge the heck out of you because we know you're going to use it right now. But you otherwise could like walk through the river probably 80% of the time, which is totally great. That is like our niche spot. But if you kind of do the financial modeling on that and your willingness to pay in a way that won't change behavior so people stop using the asset, um, our belief is that it ends up being such a long horizon of return compared to the actual local economic benefit um, that we haven't actually engaged more deeply in the intellectual activity. Right. Does that make sense? Is anyone competing with you? Is there anyone else doing what you do? There are a few other organizations that do footbridges. Um, the most important and large one is Helvetas. They're based out of Switzerland. And I actually sit on their U.S. board. And they are... So you, you partner with the other... Okay. Yeah. And Helvetas is the most reputable, one of the best, the most reputable organizations in the world across the water, sanitation, um, behavior change, women's education. They happen to do footbridges as a small, but in, 
you know, significant part of their work. Mm -hmm. um, they've done over 4,500 bridges in Nepal alone. So they are really quite good at this work. Um, there's a, there's you really a, need footbridges in Nepal. Oh, gosh, don't the they? Don't they? <laughs> um, there's a few other, like, there's a few groups that are missionaries that we've helped with. There's a really fantastic group called Engineers in Action who um, we actually spun off all of the student engagement that we do because we realized we're never going to be best at class at taking uni students, but we are best in class at bridges. Uh, so now if a student group, let's say, you know, University of Melbourne wants to build a bridge, we'd send them to Engineers in Action and then all the technical support and supply chain support that they need and we can help with, um, we go directly to the organization. So that way students can get this really great experience while we focus on what we're best in class at. So there's no chance that you're going to build a bridge and 10 meters down the river, Hel Helvetas, was that it? Yeah, like Helvetas, is going to Is going to be building one simultaneously. You guys are coordinated. You're not overlapping with each other in any way. We don't see it as a zero-sum game. So the more we can collaborate and we can actually be in, in coordination with other charities, the better. Yeah. Um, we don't actually currently work in footbridges in the same countries as anyone else. So okay. most of these other organizations are elsewhere in the world. Um, but you know, it's really important to have the ground game. Like if you don't know what the context is, I think that's translatable anywhere. If you think you're like the only one doing anything, you're going to get your butt, you know, in the wrong spot pretty quickly. So we take ground truthing and, you know, it's family show. <laughs> yeah, totally. I imagine there's a whole bunch of uh, corporate Australia that would like to be involved in some way in Bridges to Prosperity. What's um, and I saw on you know on the website you've got I think WSP Bechtel and lots of engineering firms involved already. What's the what are the opportunities for for more involvement? I mean, in this building, you know, there's any number of people that would that would like to be involved, and I know actually PwC very much supports that kind of thing. What what, what kind of things are you looking for? What are the opportunities, and where are they? Yeah, and there's a thanks for asking. I appreciate that. Oh, it's it's a plug, I guess, but it's yeah, uh, no, it's, 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 it's helpful. <laughs> it's self-serving as well. We we, we gen people all over you know all over Australia. Professionals are interested in can, in doing work that actually maximizes the value of their skill set. Yeah, um, well, I think there's kind of two pathways, um, so to speak, and one is at the individual level. Um, a big part of our big push in Rwanda, as you heard, government's willing to put in a huge amount of money. Um, and I have to go fundraise the other part. So that's being parsed out between individuals um, and also companies. Uh, and so getting individually involved is something we're actually seeking to broaden our base of support here in Australia. So whether it's getting involved with, you know, a, you know charitable giving out of your paycheck or whether it's like getting involved at a higher level, um, all things are really helpful. Um, and I think probably more relevant to some of the um, corporate angle or industry angle is that we have a program of engaging uh, corporate social responsibility. So I think it's super relevant as you think about how to get this next generation of young people enthusiastic about being aligned with their careers and their workplace um, and with that workplace doing something bigger and for more than just their, you know, their bottom line. Um, we do what's uh, an exchange program. So 10 people for 10 days have an opportunity to go and work with us and do a skills build with our team. So again, how do we build that culture of safety? How do we be able to innovate and do interesting work and teach our local staff? Um, that exchange program is quite popular. So I think you mentioned WSP and Bechtel and Arup, um, a, a few others um, here in Australia and a few dozen others around the world spend time with us and really build our capacity. And meanwhile, underwrite philanthropically a big part of our budget. So in either case, I'd love to have a chance to chat and maybe come back. Well, we'll um, when we put up this podcast and all our links, we'll put links to Bridges to Prosperity and make sure there's opportunity for people to engage with you on that. And we'll keep inviting you back as well. Thanks, Adrian. Before you go, we've had a tradition of asking everybody that comes on our podcast one question. I feel like I know what the answer is, but I'm going to ask anyway. What's your favorite type of infrastructure and why? A favorite type of infrastructure is like easy one, obviously bridges. I think they're beautiful. I think they are the uh, cross-section of um, form following function. And I think that that can be really uh, just so graceful when done well. And I think that there's something obvious for in my line of work, but even in the greater body of all infrastructure assets, I think there's something so signature where people 
see the ingenuity of, wow, that took a lot of smart people to pull off in a way that can sometimes be masked in the underground or even in the, the vertical world. So bridges for sure. Thank you, Avery, for um, taking us through the story of Bridges Prosperity and your own story about how you became the, the CEO. And um, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Avery. So that was Avery Bang, the CEO of Bridges to Prosperity. Ilya, what do you think? I thought she was excellent. Absolutely excellent. And particularly so because of the way she's found a path for infrastructure professionals to do um, charitable work that actually gets the greatest value out of them um, while also employing locals wherever possible. It's a, it's a unique balance. And I know that um, at PwC here, the executive team is very supportive of staff doing this kind of work. We can we can even put it in our timesheets, but it's it's sometimes very hard to find an actually skilled outlet for that. So Bridges to Prosperity is a, is a very unique opportunity. It is very unique in that sense. And um, with that in mind, I strongly encourage anybody listening to this pod um, to get involved with Bridges to Prosperity, to reach either uh, reach out directly to Avery or um, through us via LinkedIn, because uh, you can imagine uh, each of your organisations has um, plenty uh, of opportunities and, and work to do, and, and Bridges to Prosperity are, are hungry for that support. So that's it for today. For our listeners, we hope you'll share this podcast with colleagues and anyone you think may be interested, and leave us your reviews on iTunes or Spotify. But for now, thank you, Adrian, for hosting with me as always, and Avery for being a guest on the show. Thanks, Elia. Inside Infrastructure is an Infrastructure Partnerships Australia podcast sponsored by PwC Australia, hosted by Adrian Dwyer and Ilya Zak. The show is produced by TAG, PwC Australia's media agency. This episode was produced by Adam Stevens, with research for the episode done by Yosra Alawadi, Linda Bergeson and Mitch Dudley. You can subscribe to future episodes of the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts.